Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored and privileged to have my dear friend, Dr. Peter Weiss, co-founder of the Rodeo Drive Women's Health Center on the podcast today. Hello, Dr. Weiss. Hello. How are you, Grayson? I'm doing well, thanks. What was it like growing up in Detroit in the 60s? Oh, you're going to jump right into it, huh? Detroit in the 60s was an interesting time. First of all, Detroit was an absolutely beautiful city when I grew up. Uh, my father came to, uh, to Detroit from Hungary in the 1930s. And at that time, it was the richest city in the country. It was the automotive king. And it was very interesting. He used to go uh, downtown Detroit by the Dexter Davison bus with my mother, by the JL Hudson um, stores. And it was, it was really beautiful. And then things change like they do in life. Uh, and uh, the riots came and the people moved out into the suburbs. But Detroit in and of itself was a wonderful, wonderful city. You had a lot of great music that came out of Detroit in the 60s. In 1961, Bob Seger was born at the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. Alice Cooper came from Detroit. So when you were growing up, were you blasting this this music? Well, it was Motown. Every and People out here in California, they laugh at my taste in music because I do like Motown, the old Fifth Dimension, the Spinners. Uh, you know, it was, it was great music. And so when you met your wife, Pam, was it my girl? Was that where it was? Your yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is my girl. She's the most amazing person in the world. Uh, married to her for 32 years. Uh, she was born and raised in California as a, a big music lover. But I don't think Motown's her, <laughs> her number one. <laughs> That's all. Everybody has their own eclectic taste in, in music. And let's pivot back to the 60s here. On July 20th, 1969, like most Americans, you watched the moon landing on a black and white TV. What do you remember most from that experience? Was this your first exposure to groundbreaking technology? It was amazing. First of all, I remember uh, with a couple of the kids waiting for a school bus holding a transistor radio and thinking that that was unbelievable. This little box you held, you could play music and it was incredible but watching the the moon landing i remember my uh, mother and father they, they were blown away by it thinking it's the most amazing thing in the world and i think that my father uh, thinking back he was born even before the airplane was invented so it's an amazing amazing uh transition and it was exciting it really was and so then when they came from hungary i'm assuming they went they went on a boat to come to the states and my father came here in 1936. He had studied, he was getting his master's in uh, psychology under Sigmund Freud, but he left because he saw the tides that were turning uh, and he wanted out. My mother, I'm afraid, was stuck in, in uh, Hungary and she was in the concentration camps and he met her after the war and brought her here for the new world. And as happenstance would have it, years later, you ended up having a fascinating dinner with the astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Can you, you talk about that dinner? That, yeah, it was at a, a, a event. We had a mutual friend and Buzz Aldrin, his wife and Pam, my wife and myself were the only four people at the table. And we spent two and a half hours just sitting there. We didn't get up to dance. We didn't get up to do it. And we just were talking. It was fascinating. And he was asking me stories about how medicine is and how it's changing. And, and I'd ask him one of the, the, the most interesting thing I remember is I asked him what he thought of astronauts today. And with all due respect to astronauts today, uh, his response were, they're not astronauts, they're passengers. And he jokingly said, when we went to the moon, we had our handles on the wheel and we flew the damn thing. 
So it's interesting how it's changed. And I think that's how technology has changed too, both with medicine and with with uh, cars. You, you look about where the future was with the old crankshaft uh, to what you sit now, it's, your car really is a computer. It, it totally is a computer. And uh, be, before we had computers, you had a 73 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. I mean, you were a sharp that was my back then rolling in this. But what, <laughs> my what like? father loved my father loved Oldsmobiles. It was the grandest, the greatest old cars. Uh, when we were kids, they used to have a, a, a dashboard in the back. I don't know if you recall, but behind the back seat it would go for, oh, probably 10 or 12 inches was a flat area and it was a back dash. And we would take turns, the boys, my brothers and I, lying down on the back as we're driving down the highway, looking out the back window. I think today, if you did it as a parent, you'd be arrested. <laughs> I think you'd be in a lot of trouble, and I agree with that. But did your dad ever say, oh, I'm going to teach you kids a lesson, slam the brakes on, and you go flying? No, but it's interesting. Back then, you know, when we were 12 years old, uh, uh, we would drive. We would sit on his lap, and we would hold the steering wheel. I mean, crazy stuff that you did. When I was 13, he had a pickup truck uh, that I would just take and go into the backfield. We had that time we were just outside Detroit and we had about 20 acres and I would just ride on the dirt roads, bumping around, driving. Can't do that today. No, you, you, you can't do that today. And that opens up the interesting debate where you and I've talked a lot about where uh, I said a child born today will never, will never drive. When do you think that we're at that, at that point where that even if the child has the ability to drive, they say, I want to be driven in an Uber or I want to go in a self-driving car. When do you think that we, we hit that. We're getting close, and, and we could talk about a lot of different things, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about medicine, how what COVID has sort of pushed a generation forward, how fast things are going. I think what's happening with, uh, with driving and automation is the same thing. Driving is fun. It's a total joy, but eventually it's going to be where you don't need to drive, and they're going to say it's safer not to. We have, what, 15,000, 16,000 deaths a year from from automobile accidents, not including those who are permanently injured. So if you go to automation, you really do have a safer outcome. So my theory or my beliefs are that eventually you'll have almost like an amusement park, Grayson, where you'll take your daughter and she'll be able to drive in the amusement park, a real live car, but on the streets in Florida, no. Yeah. No, it's, it, 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 that's a really good point that you bring up because we're actually over, over 30,000. And then you talk about crashes and, and as a doctor, and you've seen some pretty horrific things is that on an earlier podcast, um, we had uh, Dr. Mark Wheeler, who's the co-founder and CTO of DeepMap. And he was talking about crashes and, and the emotional impact, even if it's just a fender bender, that the emotional impact that it has on it. Have you seen th situations like that throughout your medical career where an individual gets into a crash and they're emotionally scarred and they're, they're, they don't really recover? I'm afraid so. It happens to all of us. Uh, I, I remember being in a really bad car accident when I was giving a lecture up in uh, near Spokane, Washington, actually Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and driving back to the airport, hit black ice, and the car flipped over and rolled several times. But I was in a seatbelt. Uh, it's a big old American car, and I actually walked away. But it it you remember that, and those that's the lucky one. There are people who are in really bad collisions, who have concussions, who have. Uh, anxiety from it. There are people who are permanently injured from it. So it really does uh, affect all of us. How long did it take you to drive in a snowy environment after that? Was was there 
a delay? I know you live in Southern California, but when you have to travel to give a lecture or give a speech, was there was there a hesitancy there for a while after that? A little bit. So remember, I grew up in Detroit, so I'm used to driving in the snow, and I'm pretty good at it. And I remember going through lots of skids, lots of snowstorms. But this is many, many years later. You tend to forget. And even though I was aware of black ice, and that just means ice that you can't see, uh, you know, you don't. It's hard to remember those things. So it's there is a learning curve. So the, the next time I I went into a wintry area, I would uh, Uber. But then again. <laughs> I think I'm a better driver than some of the Uber drivers. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I would say you're right. And, and going back to Detroit, you attended the University of Detroit studying art history. And then you went to Mich- uh, University of Michigan Medical School to study medicine. What caused that, that change for you? Well, I always liked medicine, but I always liked the arts. Uh, my mother... Uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was young. And this is the days before Happy Rockefeller and Betty Ford uh, brought breast cancer to light. So people really didn't talk about it. Back then, people died uh, in a much more dramatic fashion than they do now. Today, we have over a 90% cure rate. Back then, it wasn't near that. Uh, So she was very sick, and I saw the doctors who took care of her, and I said, I want to do that. But I wanted to see first what I could do in art. So I was an art history major and did fine art, but I realized... I didn't have enough talent to be an artist, so I became a doctor. <laughs> and that's pretty much the direction I wanted to go. And the situation, the unfortunate situation that your mother went through, was that the, the inspiration that drove you to medical school and that drove you to become this, become this world-famous doctor with a reputation for <laughs> compassion? Oh, I thought it was going to be a world-famous uh, reputation for loving uh, my Michigan Wolverines, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I still still like the Wolverines. But anyway, uh, yes, it, it really was. And I remember being at uh, Grace Hospital, old Grace Hospital in downtown Detroit. I uh, would sit with my mother. You know, she passed away when I was 16, but when I was 14, 15, and she was in the hospital, uh, the doctors would come in and they would take me to lunch in the doctor's dining room. And the compassion, the attention they, they showed my mother, my family, it was something I said, boy, I want to do that. And that's really what I really tried to follow. And then we'll go down in a little bit. We'll talk about how medicines change. While the compassion is there, the ability to deliver that has changed so dramatically. There's good and bad, like in anything. Uh, if, if you want to take good and bad, you look at all these incredible films that are out there. People don't read books like they used to, and books are great, but you, you, you have to, you know, life is a journey and you, you adapt as you go along. And you're right about life being a journey from a cold Detroit winter to a warm, sunny California winter. Tell us that your little Rose Bowl story that inspired you to go west. Well, there were three of us watching a Rose Bowl one cold, cold January uh, afternoon in Ann Arbor, and it was probably five degrees outside, snow, wind blowing, frigid, frigid cold day, and they're showing sunny Southern California, and they're panning into the audience, and my two buddies and I are watching and realize, wait a minute, nobody's wearing a jacket. They had tank tops, uh, uh, knitted T-shirts, shorts, flip-flops, and all three of us said, that's where we're going, and we did, all three of us. Yeah, and it's it, as you know this. I had a similar story. I I grew up in Connecticut. and I was tired of the cold, and I I bought a one way ticket on JetBlue and said I'm going to go in the music business. Uh, it's very similar to you. Uh, I land in California with no connections, don't know anybody. I start cold calling. You start cold calling. So you graduate from the University of 
Michigan Medical School. You land in California. You don't know anybody. You start cold calling to find a job as a doctor. How did that go? Well, it was a little bit uh, different. So I did do my training out here. Uh, but when I finished training, I stayed where, where I trained for a short while. But I wanted to go into private medicine because I wanted to have that connection. And there was really no jobs available anywhere. But I just picked up the phone and it called every doctor in Beverly Hills. And one older gentleman by the name of Jose Nessim, who uh, hailed from Argentina, this wonderful uh, Latin man who had a number of kids, gentle soul. He basically said, I like you. I said, you want to come? Let's make this work. And so I started working with him and he helped me build my practice. And then I made a couple of changes along the way. And the rest is history. It was just being in the right place, the right time, finding one kind, gentle, old-fashioned doctor who gave me a chance. I guess like anything in any industry, you make that connection with somebody who's been there and done it and just gives you the opportunity. No handouts, just the opportunity. This sounds very similar to the Hollywood dream where individuals from all over the world move to LA to, to find an agent to get a break to, to get in the movie industry. So you land out there, you get your, your break as a doctor. Did you ever want to act? Did you ever want to follow that true Hollywood dream? Uh, I still love entertainment. I admit it. I have a weakness for it. And I have to admit it, it is fun, especially growing up in Detroit, uh, seeing whether celebrity, sports figure, doesn't matter. It's just fun. Uh, so I, I actually ended up doing some uh, media work, sort of by accident. I got called by a local station here. Remember, this is the second largest market, Los Angeles, second largest market in, in the country. If I would come into in-studio to do an interview with one of the anchors about some healthcare topic, I don't even remember what it was. And I said, okay, sure, why not? Let's try it. And I go down there and I see the studio, all the lights, and I realize, wait, this is live? And they said, yes. I said, oh, I thought they were going to tape it. What do I know? And so they go in and then the anchor, lovely woman, uh, starts talking. We start going back and forth. And I ended up saying the word P. <laughs> and... Afterwards, I'm thinking to myself as the interview is going, I said, oh, rats. I blew that. I said, P on, which is the equivalent of national television when you have the second largest market. So after I left the interview driving, uh, I had a message when I uh, got home. Remember, this is before cell phones. Message to call the studio. And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to tell me I made it a fool of myself. And they called and said, it was so big, such a success. People called all over the city. They wanted to know who I was that I talked like a normal person. I said pee instead of urination. And that's how it started. So because I peed, I made it. And so you get the phone call, you made it. And going back to Detroit, Bob Seger had a great song called Hollywood Nights. Did you go out and have one of those nights that he describes in that song after you got that great news? No, I think I went and got a, a burger and fries at a local deli and that was saying, all right, this is pretty cool. And speaking of pretty cool, you uh, had the the opportunity to advise Senator John McCain on his presidential campaign when he ran for president and received the Republican nomination for president. What was it like advising a sitting U.S. senator running for the highest office in the land on health care policy? Can you, do you talk about the, that experience? Well, that started, you have to go back about a year prior. My two brothers are both physicians as well, and they're absolute geniuses. And uh, the three of us uh, published several papers uh, about H1N1, anthrax. We talked about N95 masks, UVC lighting, all the stuff that we have to prepare for future pandemics. And this is back in 2006, 2007. 
And we saw what was coming. We're not the only ones. So, so many of us did. And that got the attention of somebody in the McCain campaign. And they put my name forward. And then I uh, had to go through FBI vetting the whole works. And I became a, a, a national health care advisor for the campaign. In all honesty, I, I didn't do that much. You know, we had a lot of these uh, phone meetings back and forth trying to, to, to shape healthcare policy, but there's a lot of voices. So you never know exactly how much impact you have. You hope you did. Uh, and it was fascinating realizing how these national figures who are smart and intelligent gleam the advice. They're the smart ones are the ones who know that they don't know everything. And if they're willing to listen to different voices. So what my opinion might've been different than one of the other physicians on the, on the advisory panel. But we did. We were able to to help. We think uh, formulate a healthcare plan. Uh, obviously, uh, McCain sadly didn't win. Uh, he would have been a phenomenal uh, leader. He really did have that ability to unite. But healthcare is at that time was fifteen percent of the GDP. Now it's closer to twenty percent of the GDP. So it, it is an incredible, uh, important po- part of our lives, whether you follow healthcare or not. And there are other people from both parties that, that we need to address. Um, so it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where all this goes. And, and speaking of both parties, you're probably one of the least partisan individuals I know because you just care about saving lives and compassion. And, and you've also advised um, former Governor of New York, David, David Patterson, who, uh, thanks to you, I had the, uh, the privilege of meeting what was it like working with Governor Patterson as a sitting U.S. governor compared to a presidential campaign? I, I have to, and again, all politics, politics aside, uh, Governor David Patterson is one of the most kind, gentle human beings I've met. What an unbelievable, beautiful man uh, he was. We actually, my wife and I and a group of spent uh, two weeks with him in, in Europe with another mutual friend, so we got to know him uh, pretty well. He was one of the true old-fashioned uh, politicians who really would listen to both sides of, of the view and to make the best decision possible. So he was a true joy to work with. And we were working at that time with the H1N1 out of New York. Uh, and it, it, he stood by my side and never let me take the heat for anything. And you mentioned with Governor Patterson with the H1N1, and earlier in this conversation, you mentioned pandemics, how you and your brothers and other doctors saw it. Now we're in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic. What did you and your brothers and and the other doctors that you speak with, what did you see that determined that there was a pandemic coming? Well, now you're going to get into the real global view of what life and medicine. So first of all, medicine and health, they don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, liberal, conservative, um, they don't care where, where where you're from. So back in 2006, 2007, 8, when we had the the issues with the uh, the pandemic, uh, uh, back then it luckily didn't progress to where we are now. Uh, President Bush, for all, uh, the second uh, George W, actually uh, really did identify the concerns of pandemics more than I think anyone uh, that I've seen. Uh, and uh, we stockpiled N95 masks, uh, respirators, everything. It was after his presidency that the next administration and and beyond didn't recognize uh, the potential risk. And it's not 
I'm not going to blame anyone. It's that, you know, if you don't see it in front of you, don't worry about it. The current pandemic is uh, part from globalization, part from the ability for a virus to, to, uh, to fly from one point, point A to point B in the matter of hours. So it's not like 100 years ago when we didn't have to worry about it because pandemics really were really localized uh, super infections, whether it was Ebola or an outbreak of cholera. It pretty much stayed in that general area. But today it's so easy to, tra uh, to travel around the world in the matter of hours, we're all exposed to it. So that really becomes a problem in how we prevent that. And there's no easy solution. How are we going to plan as a society for pandemics in the future since we're, we're, we're learning a lot during this current pandemic? I wish I was the smartest one to answer that. But if you noticed, if you listen to all the physician leaders, uh, I like to joke there, uh, you know, you have five uh, leaders in the room, you'll have 10 ideas uh, or 10 opinions uh, because nobody really knows for sure. But you have to then... Um, limit the exposure. So I, I'm afraid you're going to have to to verify when people come into certain areas, if they're coming from an area of pandemic, and you need to screen them. You have to minimize the exposure is really the best way to do it. Uh, we don't have vaccines for everything. If you look at the flu, the simple flu vaccine, which is a horrible killer, 80,000, 90,000 deaths a year from the flu, the vaccine only is about 50% effective. So COVID is a horrible horrible um, uh, virus, uh, which affects uh, mostly the elderly, but you see the young getting it, but we don't have an immu immunity to it. When we come up with a vaccine, if we come up with a vaccine, we don't know how effective that will be either. And by the way, COVID isn't the only one that's around the corner. There's three other different type of variations of these viruses. So uh, the, the answer isn't coming from the left or the right. It's not Republican or uh, Democrat solutions. And I think everyone's just throwing spitballs at each other, trying to make the other look bad without worrying about what's the most important thing is, which, which is our health. Will we ever achieve immunity to these, these viruses that are being spun out of COVID? The sad truth, probably. Well, you said a natural immunity. Yeah, eventually you will. So most of these appendix, if you let it run its course and, and I have a my own view of it, it's sort of like we're trying to close the barn door after the horse has already escaped. Uh, the virus is here. Uh, until you get about 60 to 70% exposure in the, in the country, you're not going to get a natural immunity, the, the herd immunity. Uh, and trying to, um, say, lock down until we get a, virus, a, a vaccine is, I think, impossible. But what you can do is try and limit the exposure. And I do think that, you know, social distancing, washing hands, these are all important. And by the way, you know where they came up with six feet? Where? You know, it's pretty much made up. Uh, don't tell anyone. So don't tell anyone out there. Uh, <laughs> it just seems like, all right, that's a reasonable number to use because uh, a viral spread could be 20, 25 feet. Uh, so what do you really do? Uh, so masks, is, as much as some people don't like it, they really do help. And it's a simple thing to do. Uh, it protects you and the other person. Uh, again, it's not something that we like to do, but we just got to try and limit the exposure as best we can, especially for the elderly population, which I'm getting close to, or maybe I already am. So it, it, we, we have to be careful. It's, it's, it's a frightening 
frightening uh, situation. And we do need to limit travel from one place to another when you're coming from a place that, that's a pandemic. And then the problem is the politicians get in the way from both parties. And how long do, do you think that we're going to see a, a limit on, on travel? And, and as you know, New Zealand's on a complete lockdown. What's going to happen when foreigners go to New Zealand? Is it just going to spread like wildfire since they've been so isolated off from the rest of the world? That's a brilliant question, and uh, probably so. So if you, again, we talk about globalization and we can go into the politics of it, and I'm sure you'll have a guest uh, on another time who will be able to explain that. I have my concerns about it. A uh, uh, hundred years ago, when you traveled from one country to the next, you had to make sure you had your immunization documents. You had to make sure you wouldn't carry tuberculosis. You had to make sure you weren't carrying communicable diseases before you came into a country. We stopped that. And maybe we shouldn't have. I'm not going to be going to the politics of it, but if you're talking about healthcare, my concern is healthcare. I think it was uh, when Ronald Reagan was shot and he was wheeled into the uh, emergency room at the hospital, the doctor who was greeting there. He uh, asked the doctor or said to the doctor, I hope you're a Republican. And the doctor said, today, you know, we're all Republicans. So in other words, or he could, if it would have been a Democratic president, he would say, today, we're all Democrats. So in other words, we're all in this together. And it sounds, I hate using those sort of these cutesy terms, but we need to do what's best to um, protect lives and save lives, but not having uh, unintended consequences. So a lockdown, as significant as as it was, in my opinion, and, and I'm not the expert on it, was overblown. There's uh, some reports of 35, 36,000 deaths as unintended consequence because of the lockdown. Those who have mental illness who didn't seek help, those who were having chest pain and a heart attack who didn't go to the emergency room because they were afraid to and they died of a heart attack. Those with stroke who um, um, didn't recognize the signs or were afraid to go to the emergency room. Uh, the delayed surgeries for people who needed hip replacements who were in chronic pain. So we have to find that balance and that's not easy to do and you're not gonna make anyone happy with whatever you decide. You're right about being afraid to go to the hospital, and as you're well aware, medicine today is changing. Hospitals are actively devising ways to keep patients out of waiting rooms and telemedicine's exploding. What are your thoughts on the future of medicine, and will this help get over that fear of going to the hospital with the introduction of telemedicine? Because you're not uh, afraid I'm, that you're going to get COVID? That, that's a great question, Ed. Believe it or not, telemedicine has been around for quite a while back. Oh, probably 30 years ago, I remember UCLA had a, an incredible telemedicine program with countries in the Middle East, and uh, it was used quite effectively. And in fact, after the first Gulf War, uh, a couple of physician buddies and I set up a company where we're, we were sending, we were planning to send American physicians to Kuwait to help rebuild their hospital system. And that didn't really go anywhere for a number of reasons, but use of telemedicine was one of the key components. So what's happened today, uh, telemedicine has really jumped uh, and, and pushed things forward. So telemedicine had issues before because of our healthcare system. If you, Grayson, came to see me as a patient, I would bill you for that visit. That's how I got paid, paid for the nursing, paid the overhead, and I'm able to function. Uh, but insurance companies didn't pay for that. So because of COVID, there was an emergency push to get uh, insurance coding and coverage for those telemedicine calls. So that was a very good thing. So now I can see you by telemedicine. Telemedicine is, I give the equivalent of the, of the um, 
the T model car with Ford. Uh, that's where we are in the future of what I call medical AI. So eventually we're gonna jump so fast forward that 80% of all the healthcare delivered will be through telemedicine, medical AI. And there's so many great advances that are already here that we can do. And when we talk about universal healthcare for all, you know, the catch-all, uh, medical AI is universal healthcare for all. That's the equalizer. That crosses all political boundaries, all economic boundaries, racial boundaries. That's the future. That's really good to know. And I want to dive into medical AI in a minute, but I want to uh, talk about nomenclatures for a minute. In the self-driving car industry, there's different names. You have a self-driving car, a driverless car, an autonomous vehicle, an automated vehicle. And doing some research for this interview, I noticed the term telehealth and telemedicine. Is there a difference between those two terms? Is there just not a clear nomenclature? There, there's not a clear nomenclature. Uh, telehealth can go beyond what we consider medicine. It could be social services. So if there's a, a marital issue, if there's family issues, you could put that under the realm of telehealth. Telemedicine is a little bit more specific, but I think they can be interchangeable. Uh, and again, like you said, that really is, we're learning. We're learning what the nomenclature is, what the terms are, and what we can provide. And telemedicine is more than just me looking at you and asking how you're feeling. It's, it's a lot more. And speaking of feeling, I want to fast forward with you into a conversation that we probably talk about every single day, at autonomous vehicles. And one thing, as you know, you and I have talked a lot about, about heart attacks or elements of situations medically that could happen to the body in a vehicle. If there is an individual riding in a full level five autonomous vehicle and they have a heart attack or some sort of you know, medical condition, how will that vehicle know that something is wrong with that individual? And will telemedicine play a role in this or will this go into your theory about medical AI? It, it really is a combination. First of all, autonomous vehicles are, are the future. I like to say it's the present, but it just depends how fast it moves forward and how it's the 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 adoptability, how quick people will accept uh, autonomous vehicle. Look how quick we accepted Uber. I remember when my kids were telling me about Uber, I said, I'm not getting in the car with a stranger. And they reminded me that's the same what I do when I go in a taxi. And I was, huh, they made a point. So autonomous vehicles are, uh, it's absolutely uh, here. Uh, the technology that a car, as we talked about with Buzz Aldrin talking about passengers, we're no longer going to drive, obviously. And the cars are now computers, intelligent computers. And they could pick up your uh, biometrics. When you sit in a car in the front seat, whatever seat you're in, it could pick up all of your, your heart rate, your respiratory rate. It could probably pick up your pulse oxygenation. Uh, if you're communicating with the autonomous vehicle, and not everything needs to be like you know, you don't have to punch in a direction where you want to go. You talk to the computer on the AI and say, listen, I want to go to the store. I want to go to the park and it will take you. It could recognize your speech pattern and realize that you're slurring your speech. It might then ask you, Grayson, um, I'm having trouble um, uh, understanding you. How are you feeling? And you could explain what's going on. I'm having chest pain. I'm having th it could recognize that. And through the parameters that you have in the autonomous vehicle, which is super intelligent, it could then tell you, Grayson, we're not going to the park. 
I need to take you to the nearest emergency room. I have a concern that you're having a stroke or a heart attack. Don't worry. I've already notified the hospital we're en route. I'm already transferring your data to them. And then the computer can talk directly to the nurse, physician, or the hospital that we're seven minutes out. Um, and here are the vitals, here are the situation. It could also know what your medical history is if you've used that uh, uh autonomous vehicle before or whatever identifier it has and it can understand Grayson do you take your medication today no you did not or all these things that can do and by the time you get to the hospital the hospital's already in the car and taking care of you until they get to the so I think it's 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 a tremendous uh, potential it's not today but it'll be tomorrow no that's that's just awesome just think about how many lives that that can save and how many positive impacts that that could have on families. And on a previous podcast, I spoke with Dr. Mark Rosekind, who's a chief safety innovation officer at Zooks. And we were talking about um, the media and how if a celebrity gets into a crash or ends up in a fatality, it's, it's, it's national news. And sometimes, depending on the status, it's international news. And we spoke about how those individuals are a celebrity to their family. And it's having a tremendous impact on that family. So this is really awesome that this will save lives. When that vehicle arrives at the hospital, do they have to redesign the infrastructure, the drop-off and pickup zone? So that, does it, is it, I believe this term is sterile. Does it have to be a sterile environment that that vehicle pulls in? So when the nurses and the doctors come to get uh, patient A out of that vehicle, does that hospital have to be completely redesigned for this future? Well, I, you're talking about receiving patients and data. It, it be coming through an emergency room, probably no different than coming through an ambulance. But what you could step back further um, let's take example with the COVID. Uh, what I envisioned when you have autonomous vehicles after or before they pick you up, the autonomous vehicle, it can self-sterilize itself. You could have UVC lighting in the car that for 20 or 30 seconds has this UVC lighting, which obviously is not good if you look at directly in your eyes or on your skin for too long. But if it's nobody in the car, you can kill 99.9% of all the germs. You could also have a mist, which is a sterilizing mist that's uh, done. So there's so many ways you can quote, sterilize is not the right word, but clean and reduce, uh, dramatically reduce the risk of any um, bacteria viral exposure from the person prior to that. So when the car picks you up, Grayson, it's already a clean environment and you know it. And when it goes to the hospital, it's not gonna be any different. The ho- you're already clean environment and the hospital will receive you. After the autonomous vehicle uh, drops you off, there'll be a mechanism for where the car knows that you've been dropped off and it'll self-seal again, cleanse and go on to its next spot. So that it's the autonomous vehicle is your, your medical AI, your personal uh, ambulance uh, care uh, delivery. Uh, but once you're done, it's on to the next one. And is the cleaning technology available today or is that stuff that still has to be invented? No, it's, it really is available today. Uh, UVC lighting is done throughout the world now. There's several companies. I think there's a, a large company out of Germany. There's a, one in the U.S. and I think Korea uh, where the UVC lighting is actually inexpensive. The problem with UVC lighting, it's not something you want on your skin. Think about when you go outside, ultraviolet light is not UVC light, but it's a little portion of it. But you can get sunburned. The light is powerful. It cleanses, it, it cleans, it destroys bacteria, but it could also give you sunburn. So you know it works, uh, but they have the technology there now. There are some companies now that have developed uh, sort of like a robot 
that goes down the aisle of an airplane and it has arms that extend over the seats and it'll roll through the airplane in between flights, uh, sterilizing the surface environment. That works to a certain degree. The reason it's not so perfect is that then you have 200 people going on a plane of which 200 people with 200 different uh, exposures to virus and bacteria, but you're reducing the risk. So the technology is there. They have the lighting, they have the spray mist, they have uh, certain uh, cleansing solutions that uh, uh, could be antiviral and antibacterial for 24 hours. There are certain materials. I think if you put copper, uh, like threading, uh, into certain materials where you don't even feel, which is antiviral and antimicrobial. Uh, 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 so there's a lot of technologies. We just have to adapt. And as you know better than anyone else, ad adoption takes time and it takes money. So as the toughest time in any person's life or anything is transition, and that's what we are now. We're in a transitional period, and it's very difficult on people's psyche. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like this idea of everything being closed down, but we have to deal with it. Uh, but it's a transition which is difficult. As we go through the transition from human-driven to shared autonomous, and we, and we go through these various different health situations, how do you think that we're going to build the trust with the public that they know when they get into autonomous vehicle A that it's been fully sanitized, it's been fully clean? Because today with shared mobility, there's really big inconsistencies because they're operated by humans that in this car goes here, this car goes there, and there's no cleanliness standards. There's no standards around vehicle design. Do you see standards evolving as or some sort of way to build public trust that this vehicle has been sanitized, it meets X criteria? That's actually a brilliant uh, question. And I think you and I should come up with that company and then we can retire. But I think that's actually a brilliant idea. But think about it. When you go into a taxi, who the heck was sitting there before? You have no idea. <clears throat> when you go into an airplane, you hope that it was clean, but you see the way these it used to be cleaned. It's different now. So eventually there will be standardization. And I would rather trust an autonomous vehicle than somebody by humans because there is the ability to do it and it could be that uh the autonomous vehicle with its own built-in ai can recognize if there was a, a fault in the sterilization or the clean cleaning mechanism let's not use sterilization in the cleaning mechanism it would be out of service it would say um there was a fault there was uh, the uvc lighting uh, malfunction for things malfunction and it would go back to the uh, to the shop where it would be fixed before it would go back in service. So I think there is just a, a adoptability and adaptability. I think it'll be quite, quite quick. I think this COVID thing has actually pushed technology a generation ahead. So not just for medical AI, which we'll talk about in a bit, but also an autonomous vehicle AI. I think people are ready for the next generation of, of services that technology and artificial intelligence can provide. I think AI is going to be what takes us through the next barrier of, of extending the quality of life and ability to fight so many of these things that we're afraid of now. And autonomous vehicles at the end of the day are robots and AI is playing a, an extremely large role in our society. And a paper came out last week, researchers from the University of California, Berkeley and Intel have taught an artificial intelligence model how to imitate the motions of stitching up wounds and surgical incisions. Researchers are saying that the AI system could one day be embedded into autonomous robots that can perform tasks such as stitching. You're a surgeon. What are your thoughts on a, on a, on a robot doing types of surgeries? 
And listen, I love watching Star Trek and Star Wars and all those. I think it's it's very doable. The issues are stitching up a wound is, believe it or not, is simple. Uh, you, you ever watch the old westerns? Uh, they 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 take a needle and thread and they sew it up. It's that's with all due respect to other surgeons, it's not rocket science. The difficulties are going to be is when you do surgery within the body. That's going to be different. But computers, AI, can do so many things uh, from, like I said, 80% of healthcare is going to be provided by medical AI and the ability to take care of all the basic things. Robotic surgery, everyone talks about robotic surgery. Robotic surgery is still operated by a human. And I think it will be for the, for the near future until we get the next generation of AI, maybe it's a silicone-based AI, uh, like data from Star Trek. Uh, but it, right now, AI is made leaps and bounds. We need to accept it and embrace it. Uh, computers now can show empathy. They, uh, they, they can show sympathy, not empathy. So empathy is a human emotion that I personally understand what you, Grayson, are going through. But sympathy is a computer can tell you, Grayson, I understand what you're going through. I can't say I feel what you're going through, but it's making leaps and bounds. So I think we're, we're, we're moving faster and faster towards that. It, it's interesting that you said the old West and I went through, there's those, um, I don't know. I, I like history and there's those civil war movies where they give the guy some whiskey and they put a knife in his mouth and then they, they go away and that's the way it was done. What do you think the reaction's going to be when an individual goes in to say, get stitches in their leg and it's a fully autonomous robot operated by AI do you think there'll be a complete freak out or it'll just kind of like ease into it once they realize that there's less pain or what do you think of that the first time somebody goes in for that surgery? Uh, you know, I've talked with a number of my Hollywood friends and said, look, I want to write a story about this. Uh, the first the medical AI robot. Uh, I think it's going to be hard. I think, again, uh, it's going to be hard to be for it to be accepted. I think the first thing if, if you want to talk about is medical AI, what truly is medical AI? And then we'll go on to the next step. So right now you Grayson go to a doctor's office, you sit through everything. All right, now you're going to telemedicine, which is a little bit more, but eventually what's going to happen. And I say 80% of healthcare is going to be this. You're going to go to your laptop or an iPhone. You're going to go into medical AI. It'll be Dr. AI who can speak in any voice that you want. It could be in your mother's voice. <laughs> you know, it could be, um, it could be any language you want. And it is going to look to you in the camera and it's going to say, Grayson, please put your palm on the palm reader. It'll say, please look into the eyepiece, which is a retinal scanner. It will then say, Grayson, your blood pressure is X. Your pulse rate is Y. Very basic. And it'll say, Grayson, did you pee into a cup? Please put the probe into the cup. It might even say, put your iPhone into the, <laughs> into the pee, <laughs> you know, and it could analyze everything. And it will say, all right, Grayson, what medicines are you out here? We're at, and it could do a complete physical checkup. It could measure and manage your blood pressure, your diabetes, your thyroid. It could do everything and in some ways better than a human. It could say, all right, we need to do a mole check for skin cancer and it'll look at your body up and down and it could do everything. So 80% of that, you're going to have now access to the best doctor in the world, which is medical AI. It doesn't matter if you're an inner city in Chicago, in the suburbs of, of uh, Miami, in Nepal, in India, it doesn't matter. Everyone is going to have access to this healthcare. This is universal 
healthcare at its best. Now, for the 20% who need additional things, it might say that you need a, a hip replacement or bypass surgery. This is before assuming we don't have advances in stem cell therapies and things like that. That's where you're going to actually have to have the human contact. Eventually, the medical AI robot will be that and will be able to do the majority of those procedures. Eventually, robots will be able to do all the difficult surgeries. But think of what another extension of that. Uh, we talked years ago, we played with the Google Glass. Yes, we but can you, yeah. can you imagine if uh, a surgeon from uh, Sloan Kettering or from Cedars or from uh, um, uh, Legone in New York uh, wants to help a surgeon in Kenya do um, a difficult neurosurgery. That the neurosurgeon in Kenya can put on a glass where it's connected to the surgeon in the US or wherever, it could be in England, in Germany, whoever the expert is, and can walk through that surgeon in Kenya or in China or in Australia, doesn't matter, or in the back countries anywhere in the US. You then have technically the best surgeon around walking through the surgery. So you're going to have the expertise of the doctor off-site, but the doctor who's doing is just the hands. So that's where AI comes in. It's, it is really the great equalizer of 20% of our GDP and the great equalizer, more important than anything else in our life is our health. There was an old, very old commercial from I think the 1970s, a, a product called Geritol. And their one tagline, which I remember, I love, if you have your health, you have just about everything. And I always like that. You, your, health, your health is everything. And I want to dive back into Google Glass because I think I'm, I'm very confident we were one of the first deliveries with Google Glass. And we, we used it in the delivery room. And having that on, and, and, and you weren't allowed to wear it for obvious reasons, but you could see the dramatic impact that could have if you're sitting there giving the, the vital infor information that it can completely change the world. And remoteness, you went over with the with your with your daughter, Erin, and, and your wife, Pam, over to Nepal. Right. And you set up remote birthing sites. Could you see that in the future where the individual there might be using sort of artificial intelligence combined with some sort of glass on how to, to give birth? Oh, absolutely. So uh, Pam, Aaron, and myself, we went about five years ago to Nepal. Nepal had, through an organization, incredible organization called One Heart Worldwide. Arlene Salmon is the uh, CEO, and she got uh, sort of, uh, was given an order by the Dalai Lama to go save lives. And she took it to heart. At one heart worldwide. So we went to Nepal and we set up what's called safe birthing sites. And to, not to go into too much specifics, it's one of the poorest places in the world. One of the most beautiful people I've ever met. Kind, caring, gentle, understanding what's important in life. It sort of makes you realize what we have, what we take for granted. But we went on eight hour Tata Jeep uh, through the goat trails up in the mountains of the Himalayas to set up these birthing sites. Uh, but yes, uh, the ability to have remote access uh, is information. So most of everything in health is just information. And that's where artificial intelligence can come in. And the funny thing is, Grayson, when we were in the middle of nowhere in the Himalayas, my cell phone worked better than it is when I'm here in Los Angeles, which sort of mind boggling, uh, but it did. Uh, I guess it helps when you're 20,000 feet up or something. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yes, and Nepal was an incredible experience, but that did show what the future holds. And again, medical AI is going to be 
revolutionary and we are in the very, very first stages. As an example, there's a company called Butterfly, which makes uh, ultrasound probes. So if you ever had an ultrasound or you remember uh, uh, with your wife when she had ultrasound of the pregnancy, these big 40, 50,000, $100,000 ultrasound machines where you have a technician doing the probe. Butterfly came up with a very simple, inexpensive probe. And this actually came out of uh, the war in Afghanistan where soldiers would use a probe on an iPhone. Uh, that you can do a probe. So if you were at home, I ship you a probe. You connect through the internet to the remote doctor or technician. You put the probe on your chest to do a cardiac ultrasound. You then, like in a Zoom meeting, you give control to the doctor and you will see on the screen, the doctor tell you how to move the probe and you just move your hand and it's complete imaging going directly to the physician who's watching it and gets imaging. And these probes are about 1800 bucks. They are actually developing disposable probes because this is out of 3D printing. So the cost of the ultrasound machine is dramatically reduced. The ability to do ultrasound, cardiac ultrasound is, is vital. Uh, you can then do home ultrasounds without driving 50, 60, 90 miles to go see the doctor and they can tell you exactly what needs to be done. They, can you imagine if you're in a remote village doing the same type of thing? And let's say you need a medication. Instead of driving through the Himalayas, I can have a drone, autonomous, drones are autonomous, but a, a drone with the direct address that it's shipped from wherever it is directly to this villager's coordinates and it's just dropped off. This is amazing what's gonna happen in the future. The future is amazing, and we're seeing um, there's an Alphabet subsidiary called Wing that's doing medical delivery testing now in northern Virginia. So drones are coming. What do you mentioned a lot in this conversation is the iPhone and, and Apple. And Apple has been very public, and CEO Tim Cook, about talking about their health ambitions. I'm going to go a little bit on a limb here. It seems that the iPhone becomes the conduit to medical AI, and you plug in accessories and devices into it. That says to me, you can save money and save lives while also imp improving the, the ability to deliver affordable healthcare. What do you think Apple's plans are for, for healthcare? Well, if you want to ask Tim Cook to call me, I'm happy to talk to him. Uh, it's really fascinating. It, it's, uh, I, I wish again, I was uh, smart enough to understand all the technology behind it, but Technology really is the future, and so many of us are afraid of it. I, I understand that. I, I, I get that. Uh, it's the technology behind Apple, the ability to communicate, get information is really uh, what drives everything. Uh, the Apple, as you and I know, it's a computer. It's a handheld computer, which is as powerful as the old big computers you had from 20 years ago. So I don't know what their specific goal is, but I think they have a... a, a uh, an understanding that healthcare, like I said, is 20% of the GDP. So not only is it good for, for our lives and our healthcare, I think it's good for money. And I think they'll make a lot of money doing it probably more than anything else they've done. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a big, bold statement. So you believe that. So right now we're looking, if you look at Apple's uh, growth and revenue, it was the iPhone historically leading. And then as you and I've talked to years ago, I said, watch the services business. And at some point, the services business is going to overtake the iPhone business and supplant it as the most profitable 
business inside of Apple. And now you're projecting the next third leg that that Gene Munster and and from Loop Ventures and Wall Street's looking for will be will be healthcare. Yeah, you, there's only so many games you can play on Apple, <laughs> you know, with all the apps. Uh, and healthcare is like again, I keep quoting it's what 16 to 20 percent of the GDP. That's a lot of money, and that's something that you don't have to play a game on Apple or an, with an app and. It's just not there, but your health, you have to. If you think about our longevity, um, if you think, if you go then to autonomous vehicles and we can then take the 20,000 deaths from motor vehicle accidents here and it cut that to one, there's still going to be a few. Uh, if you take all the injuries, which are 100,000 and cut that to minimal amount, you're going to increase longevity. If you could take uh, preventative medicine. And they, the theories are that preventative medicine, if you did everything right, you could extend life about eight or nine years, which you think you extended long, but that's really it right now. But that's eight or nine more years. So health is going to be what we maintain our quality of life. And I think it's all through medical AI. And I think that's where somebody like Apple can come in and capture, um, capture the market. I mean, they really have the best ability to do that. And, and I think, the, the, like we talked about too for a few minutes, um, the adoptability of people, how quick they will accept something. I think the newer generation, younger generation will accept a lot older than old farts like me. But even old farts like me who are used to Apple, if it comes from my iPhone, oh, it must be good. Do you remember the old thing about if it was on the internet, it must be true? Yes. <laughs> so if it's on Apple, it must be good. And... That you're right about must be good. And the other, the secret weapon that Apple has is the genius bars because consumers, especially older consumers, if you, if you do look at research around senior citizens and, and, and older individuals, which you are not, by the way, you are uh, very young, is that they trust the genius bar and they go there and that becomes interesting. Does that become, is that the doctor's office of the future? The iPhone is a doctor's office of the future. Just is. Welcome to your new doctor. And you could, like I said, if you want to hear your mother's voice tell you, you know, Grace and eat healthier, exercise more, she's there. So from iPhones to autonomous vehicles to autonomous drones, how do you envision the future of healthcare being delivered and what impact will it have on patients? Well, we touched about little different things, but I really do think uh, we talk about there's a physician shortage. While there's an immediate physician shortage, there really isn't. Because the future and the answer is medical AI. 80% of all healthcare is going to be done through your iPhone, through your computer, your laptop, whatever you want to do. You're not going to need a physician to tell you to eat healthier, exercise more. Your computer will tell you to do all of the things you need to do. The delivery of technology to the home is going to be another game changer from autonomous vehicles taking you to when you do need to go to the doctor's office from autonomous vehicles, recognizing that you need to go to the doctor or urgent care instead of going to your friend's house. So again, it's transitional. And what COVID did is I think pushed up this transition by 25 years. We touched about earlier that transition is always the hardest uh, turmoil. It's horrible, but in turmoil, there's opportunity and there's opportunity for us as a nation, as a world, whether you're Democrat, Republican, left or right, it doesn't matter uh, that to use technology to be the great equalizer. This is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, green or blue, 
Jewish, Christian, Muslim, it doesn't matter. Uh, healthcare, again, affects all of us equally. Uh, and this is the great equalizer. Again, so you're going to have inner city kids having the same access to the best healthcare medical AI that the richest person uh, in the country or the world does. You're going to have third world countries having the same access as those in Rodeo Drive or in Palm Beach. It's, it's really an unbelievable thing. And it doesn't affect, it doesn't take away from one or the other, which makes it worthwhile. So it's one thing if you take away from one person to give to another, there's going to be conflict. There's no conflict here. This is unbelievable. I'm very excited about the future of medicine with medical AI, autonomous vehicles. I think this is here to stay. Medical AI is the future. Tech- technology is the future. And as Dr. Weiss has clearly demonstrated on this podcast, you will have the world's best healthcare thanks to the inventions of AI and technology. And, and Dr. Weiss, I can't thank you enough for coming on the SAE podcast to share your wonderful, brilliant thoughts on the future of medicine and healthcare. It was an absolute honor to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.